Good morning. Hope you're enjoying your holiday weekend. It's been a blessing this week. A uh, little context of, of, as we get into the book of Nehemiah, um, you have to go back about 150 years before we get to what Nehemiah is going to share with us, is that the nation of Israel had fallen into ruins morally. They became bankrupt, and God brought judgment on them and brought Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire to come in and take all of Israel, both the north and the south, because the kingdom had been divided. And he did it because of, uh, of Israel's disobedience and took a whole bunch of people into captivity for roughly 70 years until uh, the great kingdom of Babylon was overtaken by the Persians, right? The Persians came in and they took over and uh, uh, King Cyrus let the captives go back. A lot of the captives decided to go back to Israel, namely Jerusalem. And so for about 80 years, they've been living there, but they, they were also having some issues with being, again, obedient to God. So in those captives that went back, Ezra went back 13 years before this the time we find that Nehemiah is going to build the temple. And it's really kind of, you're probably thinking oh, it's a history lesson, but it's an important history lesson to understand because we see how God works. What I like to see in this and what really kind of illuminated to me as I got into the passage this week is that I see that Ezra was the priest, right? He's your, your paid man of God, goes and precedes Nehemiah by who all accounts is an ordinary guy, right? And it kind of shows this collaboration between the, 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 the priest and the layman and how they work together to bring on revival and restoration to the kingdom. It's kind of a picture of second chances. How many people are excited that God is a God of second chances, right? We all needed second, third, fourth, fifth chances. He's a God of grace. And the interesting thing is if you here are today and you are the, the best looking or the wealthiest or the smartest or the most athletic or whatever it is that you are the best at, and you know, for me, I, I think I have to pray for you for God to use you because God often only uses ordinary, simple people, right? which is kind of cool. I think that means all of us, right? And so when we look at this passage and we look at the, the, what's happening here, it starts off and it says that Nehemiah is touched emotionally. But I think before we even get in, let's understand, you know, he references the walls of Jerusalem lay in ruins, right? And it's important for us to understand what he's talking about because there's a lot of context there that you miss if you just think they're physical walls, right? Walls are important because they define space. They, just, they define what a space is all about. For example, um, this church, we have walls, and it defines the function and a purpose of a thing. This is a church. We worship God here. Different rooms define different things. And you have your walls in your kitchen. Say, this is where you cook and have meals. You have walls for your bedroom and your bathroom and whatever you have. It defines the space that you're in. Walls also limit access, right? If you want to keep things out, you put up walls. They also help people not to see what's happening inside, right? They also set boundaries. They limit behavior, describes activities that take place. In these walls, we worship. In some of the walls out there, we have Bible study, and then there's nursery. Walls define the space and boundaries. They provide protection for the elements, from the elements examples. 
But most importantly, I think they, de- they declare ownership. In my house, my walls show that it's something that it's owned. It's not public space or open space. It's owned space. And I think having spiritual walls show that you belong to God. And we belong to God. And living differently than the world is one of those proofs that you belong to him. And so I think we have a basic understanding of walls. What did it mean for the Jews at that time that were living behind broken down walls? Nehemiah was an ordinary man. He was a cupbearer. The cupbearer, in all rights, was a glorified butler in most cases. What he was there to do was to drink wine, to validate that it wasn't poisoned, and and then so that the king could drink from it. So it was probably a great job until somebody tried to poison the king, and then it was a really bad job, right? But what's great about that is it, it, it provides the access and a relationship to the head guy. But again, he's just an ordinary man fulfilling a function. But I love how God uses ordinary people, and I think there's some attributes of Nehemiah's life as we set the foundation for this change your world in 52 days. The 52 days references how long it took Nehemiah to build the walls back up, right? 52 days. We're going to cover it in 28, but that's okay. It took him 52. So I think God uses people first and foremost, and this, is, this was one of the toughest points that I struggled with all week long, was that he uses people that let their emotions fuel their passion for God's purposes. In verse 4, he says, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned from days. Isn't that interesting? Did you ever notice how God tends to move mountains on rivers of tears? You ever think about that? There's a sacredness in tears in my mind. They're the mark, not the mark of weakness, but that of power. They speak more eloquently than 10,000 tongues. They are the messengers of overwhelming, overwhelming grief, of deep conviction, of unrestrained joy, of unspeakable love. Jesus himself showed great emotion. In righteous anger, he cleared the temple. And yet, in tears of sorrow, he wept over Jerusalem. He had emotion in his words, when he whispered, it caused Peter to weep. And yet when he thundered, it brought forth Lazarus out of the grave. Emotions normally would tempt us to do what is easy and selfish, and that's the struggle I have, because I, I firmly believe you can't base your faith on your emotions. But they have a play and a, and a place. I remember when we faced the decision, John, myself, and, and Tim, on whether we merged or not. It was very emotional. So many things to consider. The history, the place, the, the, the purpose, and all those things. But there was this overwhelming call from God to be obedient. And in the process of really thinking it through and it would have been easy for us just to put our heads down and forge ahead to what we knew and what we were doing and forget about what God was asking us to do. But at the end of the day, we couldn't escape the call of God. And we had to put aside our emotions and our feelings and our logic in a lot of ways and just be obedient. 
And sometimes that's the hardest thing for us as believers is just to trust the call of God even though we don't feel it or understand it or can rationalize through it. To me, when God calls without wavering, we must respond in obedience regardless of our emotions, reasons, and logic. Think about all the things he'd ask people to do in Scripture. You want to bring the walls down of Jericho? Walk around seven times and shout. I mean, come on. Think about that. Haman, he didn't want to get healed, right? To go into the river. He wanted to do it his own way. And so often we want God to answer our prayers and use us in a way that's in accordance with what we want. And that's never how he works. To me, have you ever heard the slogan, facts, faith, and feelings? Slogans are powerful things. Think about how they've moved the world, right? In our own country, remember the Alamo was a slogan that drove us to win freedom for Texas over uh, Mexico. How about uh, remember Pearl Harbor? How about remember 9-11, something within our time? How it motivated and galvanized the country to take action. Slogans can be really powerful. When I first got saved, This was one of the first slogans that I had in my life that really caused me to step back and think. It comes from Campus Crusade. How many people know Campus Crusade, right? Back in the day in college, uh, they sat down with me to understand what was going on. I'm reading this stuff, and it really was kind of an interesting slogan. And when you look at it in, in their books, it sort of focuses on three things. First is facts, which is facts about Christ, they say. Really, it's the truth of Scripture. The second is the response of faith to those facts. And then what they say at the end is that the third is feelings that may or may not follow. And to sort of galvanize that in the the person's mind, they have this little illustration of a train. The locomotive is fact. The, The cold car is faith. And then the caboose is feelings. And what they say is that the um. That the, that the train will run with or without the caboose. Makes sense, right? So, it, in other words, feelings aren't essential. It's really about the truth and faith that corresponds to that truth that makes the difference. And to me, I think emotions are, are an important part of the movement of God when I see it in Scripture. Feelings include things like gratitude, hope, joy, contentment, peacefulness, desire, compassion, fear, hate, anger, grief. And none of these is merely physical, right? The Bible even says angels and demons and departed saints have feelings. So I struggled with this for a long time. I understand it, but I also struggle with it because I, can, I know how powerful emotions can be. Apart from the Bible, I think Jonathan Edwards has written the most important book on feelings in the Christian life, and it's called The Religious Affections. The definition of these affections or feelings, is, he says, is this. The more vigorous and sensible exercises of the inclination of the will of the soul. In other words, the feelings that really matter are not merely physical sensations. They are the stirring up of the soul with some perceived treasure or threat. And that's what we see happening with Nehemiah. His soul is being stirred up by the emotions of the fate of God's people in Jerusalem. There's a connection, I think, between feelings of the soul and the sensations of the body. Edward says, the laws of the union which 
the creator has fixed between the soul and the body. That's what those are. In other words, heartfelt gratitude can make you cry. Fear of God can make you tremble. The crying and the trembling are in themselves spiritually insignificant. The train can run without them. That's the truth of the slogan. But gratitude and fear, are, in my mind, are not optional in the Christian life. It has an important place and function for the believer. To me, the greatest paradox is emotions cannot be trusted, but yet they tell us some of the greatest truths. Moreover, faith itself it has in it something that most people would call a feeling in itself, right? Saving faith means receiving Christ. We all say that, right? To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, the Bible says. But what receive, when we say, when we say receive, we receive what? Well, we receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, right? That's what we say. We receive him as Lord and Savior. And it's right, but more essentially, it should be said that saving faith also receives Christ as a treasure. True? And to me, a non-treasured Christ is a non-saving Christ. Faith that has in it its element of valuing, embracing, prizing, and relishing of Christ. It's like a man who, the Bible says, found a hidden treasure in the field and from joy sells all his treasures he has to buy that field. Driven by emotion. Therefore, I think we should affirm the slogan of faith, fact, faith, feelings, but at the same time make it clear that the locomotive of fact is headed for heaven. We have to understand that there's a caboose. Once we understand that how faith is connected, that's going to have some new feelings associated with that faith. It's kind of interesting how it all works in the end. For me, it kind of came and crystallized this week because, you know, my youngest son, we just took off to school last week and dropped him off at Liberty. And uh, we had all kinds of concerns and, and, and issues. And uh, when he was with us, uh, just it was a struggle every Sunday morning to get him up. I mean, it was a battle. At the times I'd preach, I'd had this fight with him to get him out of bed, to get him here on time, right? It was difficult. Now we're taking him off to school, and not only do I got a, you know, we, we went and bought a, an alarm clock that has this huge alarm on it, and it has a little thing that connects, the, and we put it under this pillow, it's about this big, and it's like a vibrating thing. I think it also has electric shock, because that's the only way he's going to get up, right? And so the first day that he stayed in the room, we kind of left him there, and uh, the, the next morning I called just to see what was going on. He called to make sure I knew he was awake, because he had orientation, and he woke up, and I says, he goes, Dad what do I do for breakfast? <laughs> and I said, well, what time you got to be at orientation? He says, 10 o'clock. And I said, what time did you wake up? He says, 9. I said, well, here's the thing. Since you woke up at 9, grab a couple rice cakes and walk to class and get there on time, right? If you want breakfast, you get up at quarter to 9, right? You got to learn to manage your time. And he goes, okay, Dad, hangs on the phone. And he does this thing, and we were going to meet him for lunch afterwards. So he went to his class, and then he went to convocation. And we're at lunch, he's talking about convocation. How, I'm thinking, all right, man, he's, he's listening, right? It was hard to get him to do here, but he's listening. And then we left, and then Monday came, and he went to convo again, first day of real school. I'm going to share this with you. 
just because I want to, you know, he sent this to my wife. And to me, it blessed me all week. And he says this. He says, he sends it to his mother. He goes, Carrie Job is uh, leading worship at Convo. She's got an amazing voice and is really pretty, laugh out loud. (laughs) I can already feel the constant leaning of God and church services drawing me closer to him, and it's a great feeling. I don't miss partying or any of my friends back home. I honestly have a lump in my throat, and I get teary-eyed almost every service because it's overwhelming how powerful it feels to worship with all those people. I just want to cry. I want to burst out crying for God to give me the opportunity to be a part of something like this. I lost my place. Okay. Something like this. Of all the time I wasted and the sins I've done, I don't deserve this. I'm excited for the road ahead, Mama. Thanks, Mama, for everything you definitely noticed, the changes made for me and God working in my life. Now... I read it because, you know what, a lot of what he's saying is based on emotion. It's based on the emotional experience of being in a, in a convocation with 8,000 other students worshiping God and just that overwhelming feeling of what that's like. But at the same time, I realize that maybe that's the one thing he needed to engage the facts about Christ that he accepted in faith to make a change in his life. That's my prayer. That's my hope. So I see the place of how they work together. I don't want my feelings to determine what truth is or what I should do. That should be based on the truth of the word of God and the faith that I put in there and the results of that faith. But I also understand emotion kind of works with it. And it's something that God uses to empower us as ordinary people. He uses our ordinary emotions to get us connected with passion to his purposes where we live. So let me ask you a question. God uses ordinary people whose emotion that fuels their passion for his purposes. What this morning is breaking your hearts, if anything? I look around and I think of the stories of the past couple weeks, child abuse or neglect, a, a young man who threw the three-week-old infant against the wall in rage. Is our heartbreak for that. Physical or sexual abuse in people's lives. It's happening all around us. Is our heart breaking for those things that are destroying our kids? How about human trafficking? We hear it all over the place. How about people being bullied? How about poverty, hunger? How about the immorality that exists in our country and the callousness towards our God? How about broken families, broken marriages, unwed mothers, people without hope? What burden has God placed on your heart? What emotion has he stirred up in you? The problem with a lot of us, we... We can be so open to other people's feelings because most often we're constantly avoiding our own. We can see what God's doing everywhere else, but we're not willing to expose ourselves in obedience to God to find out what he wants each and every one of us to be passionate about. 
the cool thing about this passage is it reminds me that wherever you are at, wherever you are at today, you are exactly where God wants you to be. And you're in a place where God wants to use you, more importantly, if you're open to it and you're seeking it. God uses ordinary people who let their emotions drive their passions for God's purposes. They got the facts, and based on those facts, they have the faith, and they're just letting their feelings really drive the passion behind what they do. I think we need to be more passionate about God's purposes. I think God also uses people, as he used Nehemiah, for people who are prepared themselves to live on mission. Think about it, verse 4, he says, And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. In this book, this is first of 12 different prayers in Nehemiah. And I love the fact that this is his first response and not the last resort. As soon as he recognizes an issue, he's sitting down and he's weeping and he's mourning for what God has laid on his heart. Here's the prayer he prays. He starts off, he weeps, he mourns, he fasts, he prays, and he does this. And I said, Lord God of heaven, great and awesome God, who keeps covenants and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. He's telling God about his character. Not for God's benefit, but that God knows he knows. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. He doesn't make it everybody else's issue. He personalizes saying, hey, I'm part of the problem too. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the utmost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to a place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, a nobody, and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this name. And I love the next verse. Now, I was a cupbearer to the king. I was a nobody. I wasn't a paid religious guy. I wasn't a priest, a prophet. I'm just a cupbearer to the king. To me, I think that's an interesting thing when you think about it. His first response is he mourns and he weeps, but then he fasts and prays. Think about this. I, I think it's proof in America today that most Christians do not fast. And let me tell you why I say that, because I think one of the things that's, I think the there's an, uh, a very few books have been written on fasting in the Christian world since 1950. You know, there's been a ton of books written on, you know, how to handle money, marriage, leadership, inspiration, church growth strategies. 
a lot of things, even on Christian fiction, but very few books on fasting. And I would ask all of you today, how many of you have read a book on fasting or even own a book on fasting? To me, I think it's in a little bit of an indictment on the church and, and us. But we ask the question, I ask, why not? Because you know why? For publishers, books on fasting just don't sell. You know why they don't sell? It's because it's hard to sell intentional denial of oneself in a culture that worships comfort and self-fulfillment and happiness. Nobody's buying books on fasting. Nehemiah had no such aversion and understood that God gives us special tools to do his work. It's interesting because to me, to get victory in the Christian life, we do need special tools. We need special tools that are not of this world. Where this came true to me is when when, um, um, I went from living on my tithe, I mean, giving a tithe to living on my tithe, money was really tight. And I had five cars. And they were always, I didn't have new cars because I had bought my kids used cars and they were always breaking down. And I realized if I didn't learn how to fix cars, I was going to go broke trying to fix my cars. So a good buddy of mine, Bob Poshis, would say, bring your cars over. And initially, he, he worked on them, and I was the assistant. I'd get them the tools and do all this other stuff. Eventually, he said, you do that. And then eventually, he started supervising me doing it. And I'd bring my boys, and they'd learn how to do brakes and tune-ups and change everything from tie rods to ball joints to almost everything, right, to save money. Here's the interesting thing. I realized when I was with him, there's he has special tools to do some of the coolest things. Tools that I didn't have. One of my favorites was when my battery wasn't charging, I thought my alternator was out, and he says, oh, no. He, I come there, say, so he opens my hood, and he goes in his thing, and he grabs this little thing, and he takes the cables off, and it's a little round thing with wire in it, and he's cleaning off my battery cables, right? And then cleaning off the, the, the posts. And then he plugged it back on, and next thing you know, my battery was charging fine. My battery was fine because it was losing the connectivity because of all the corrosion. And for me, that brought a spiritual truth to my life. How often we let the corrosion of sin, disobedience, and apathy block us from hearing the call of God through the Holy Spirit in our lives. The issue with that, God understands that. And because he's the God of second chances, he gives us special tools to reconnect us so the flow of our, of our faith engaged by our feelings can be reconnected to the purposes of God. And he calls it prayer and fasting. When's the last time you fasted? To me, when we're called to faith, faith means action. Faith means we do something, and we should do what God calls us to do, to do it his way, which means fasting and prayer does nothing but support and deliver God's purposes, right? So he uses people who get in touch with their emotions to drive their passions, to fuel the purposes of God, and he also uses people who understand the power of the special tools of the faith, which is fasting and prayer core spiritual disciplines. But we also see in Nehemiah's life that these people always move from this being prepared for the mission to doing the mission. In other words, acting on the mission. We see that Jeremiah prayed to plan, and then he acted on the plan. 
See, God uses people who take action as they are led by the Holy Spirit. In chapter 2, it says, In the month of Nisan, it was the twelfth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king, because he was the cupbearer, and now I had not been sad in his presence before. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then it says this, And then... I was very much afraid. Isn't that interesting? He prayed all this stuff. He fasted. He's coming now before the king, and the king recognizes he's got an issue, and he asks him what the problem is, and all of a sudden he kind of tenses up. Doesn't it happen to all of us? Shows that he's human. Shows that he's ordinary. Because he knew it was at stake. If the king was displeased with him just for the way he looked, he could kill him, let alone for what he's about to ask. He knew what was at stake. He could have said, oh, nothing. I'm sorry. Let me, that's my bad. Let me, let, me, let me put a smiley face on. But he doesn't. He says this. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruin and its gates have been destroyed by fire? He wept. He mourned. He fasted. He prayed. He acted. To me, I think I found it a lot easier to act myself into a feeling than it is to feel yourself into an action. Isn't that true? But sometimes they can work together. He was ready for the conversation that the king initiated, and he realized this is from God. It's interesting that sometimes we don't realize our dispositions say a whole lot about us, and it says a whole lot about our faith. One of the famous stories was Martin Luther, who was one of the most influential leaders of the Protestant Reformation in the 14th century, was a man who was used greatly by God, but he was also given to times of dark, dark depression. One time he got really down and depressed and locked himself away in a room and wouldn't come out for anyone or anything. His wife, Kathy, tried to coax him out of the room with no success. Finally, she went and dressed with a black veil black gloves, totally decked out in black, and went into the room with Martin Luther. And Martin looked at her and said, Dear Kathy, who died? I love her response. She says, Why? God died, Martin. He jumped to his feet and says, That's blasphemy, woman. How dare you talk like that? To which she replied, Yes, it is, Martin. And so is the way you're living. Here's what happened. He got up out of the room and went and wrote immediately the great gospel hymn, Our God is a Mighty Fortress. Sometimes we let some walls of discontent, walls of depression, walls of dissatisfaction bottle us up and keep us from doing God's work and preventing us from failing to acting and moving because either we didn't get our way, it's not what we wanted, or we just don't see God doing this. Instead of just trusting his hand and understanding he is in control of me and everyone around me. To me, I love a friend of mine who was some of you know Pastor Musser, a great man of God, faithfully served God all his life. And one of the times I talked to him, I asked him, man, how did you do, keep it together for so long? And he said to me, you know, Mike, I never lost the wonder 
of God. And I wonder how many of us have lost the wonder of God. And we've been disillusioned by the things going on in our life or things going on in the world or the things that we didn't get or we shouldn't have gotten or we, or, or, or we want from keeping us from embracing God's passion, purposes passionately. To me, I wonder if, how many people are really in this with us. Ezra needed somebody. God sends an ordinary guy like Nehemiah to help in the work. And it's amazing what happens. To me, when I look at it, the last thing is God uses somebody who humbly trusts God's sovereignty. Verse 4 in chapter 2, he says, And the king said to me, What are you requesting? And then he says this, So I prayed to the God of heaven. You can see him standing from the king, and the king says, What do you want? And then before he says anything, he just says that silent prayer to himself. Lord, bless what I'm about to say. Guide what I'm about to say. He just takes that moment before he speaks, right? He's slow to speak like scripture tells us. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. Isn't that awesome? He follows through. Emotion drove his, his passion for God's purposes. He prepared himself, prepared himself for the mission. He fasted and prayed, and then he acted on it. And he trusted God for the results. Isn't it interesting? Doesn't the Bible say that? That faith without action or faith without works is dead? His faith wasn't dead. See, faith, to be real, has actions associated with it, right? It's based on the things we do. It's based on going out and making a, being a blessing to someone for just no reason but to show and share God's love. It's doing things because we have a second chance, because we needed a third chance and a fourth chance, because God is good and gracious. He calls his church to take down the walls in some sense, the walls that keep others out, the walls that prevent us from sharing the love of God with other people. So often we put up walls ourselves, don't we? We put up walls to keep people from seeing into our lives because we just don't, we want to be at hand's length from the fellowship of the body of believers. We don't want to open ourselves up in a growth group and just really unite with people. We put up walls sometimes that put up our prejudice to things that we don't like or don't want to do or don't want to see versus embracing all that God has for us. We put up walls that judge others. And the Bible says not to judge the world, right? He'll do that. But to embrace them. To me, when we, the walls are down, it means the enemy has had a breakthrough in our lives. When your walls have been breached, the enemy has gotten the upper hand in your life. And I'm wondering this morning, how many people's walls have been breached? It means you've sort of lost your identity. Your walls say who you are, remember in the beginning, and who we are. It gives you the ability to resist greatly diminished is your, is your ability to realist greatly diminished and almost be non-existent because your walls aren't strong enough to stand against the attacks of the world the philosophy of the world the logic of the world are your walls which should define your boundaries in the process of decay and ruin and we can't judge what's the difference between the church and the world or what's the difference between you and everybody else in your world other thing is is that if any of those things are true are you 
comfortable living in that state of ruin, which we never should be. The church should never be in that case. D.L. Moody, when he started his ministry, he said that, the, hear the preachers say, the world is yet to see what a man, what God can do with a man fully surrendered to him. And D.L. Moody said, I want to be that man. And he reached multiple contents and continents and hundreds of thousands of people. One man fully devoted unto God. God doesn't seek those with the greatest ability or the most education. He chooses those who faithfully and fervently serve him. He uses those men and women who possess a great burden and a desire to move forward. It's abundantly clear the church needs restoration and revival. There's no shortage of people who claim that they want to see revival, but there is a shortage of people who are willing to do something about it. The problem is that the majority are waiting on someone else to do something. However, nearly every great movement of God began with one or two people who developed an immense burden for revival or change. That was the case in Nehemiah's day. Jerusalem had been in ruins for many, many years, and many Israelites noticed the problem, but no one did anything about it. God had to raise up Nehemiah and give him a burden for the things that he had him to do. There are many similarities between Jerusalem and Nehemiah's day and the church today. The church in America in many ways is a mere shell of its former self, is it not? The walls of separation between church and the world have been broken down. There's little difference between the world and the church today. But let me remind you that the Lord says, come out from among them and be separate. Be different. Look like me in a world that needs to see what it means to be truly loved. I don't think anybody in here would disagree that we need revival. The question is, who was willing to get up and do something about it? And in doing that, we'd have to ask some questions. Where is the church on your list of priorities? Where is worship on your list of priorities? Where is prayer on your list of priorities? Where is Bible study, growth group, on your list of priorities? Where is evangelism on your list of priorities? Where is Christian service on that list? Do the things of God come before your career? Do they come before your family? Do they come before your recreational activities? Do they come before your leisure time? Do the things of God come before your hobbies? What really is the focus of your life? What is important to you? Where is God in your life today? Let me remind you what Jesus said about priorities. Lay not up for yourself treasures upon earth where moth and rust corrupt, where thieves break in though and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, where thieves do not break through your and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. Can anyone say they have a burden for others? But if they do, it has to be evident in action they take on that burden. Nehemiah shows us he wept, he mourned, he fasted, he prayed, and he acted. 
And what drove him to action, not only was the passion behind it, but he also the promises of God. How many promises does God give us in Scripture to say that if we pray in accordance to his will, he'll hear from heaven and answer that prayer? If my people humble themselves, right, and seek my face, I will heal their land. There's promises galore in Scripture that says if we act, God will provide. The question is, are we asking Nehemiah claimed that the promises of God, God enlisted Nehemiah to go forth and work. The prayers concerning God's people uh, would be answered, but Nehemiah would have to roll up his sleeves and get to work, and so do we. Too many, in my mind today, many of the things that God needs to be restored are going to take people, effort, and time. There's no question the church needs revival, where the people who are going to do it, however, that's the question. We need people in this very church who, like me and Maya, are willing to step up and take action and get out of their comfort zones and get to the work. We need people who will look around and realize the walls are broken and the gates lay in ruins in our nation, in our town, in our families, in our workplace. The question is, will you be one? Sometimes we've got to recognize that our greatest burden often opens the door to our greatest blessings. So today, I just want to end with this. I don't want you to worry if you're deeply burdened about something this morning. That's what God does for us. You should be worried if you're not deeply moved about anything or anyone. That's a scary place to be. Let's pray. Father, as we close and we get ready to start this wonderful adventure to see how you took one ordinary man's life and moved him to, Lord, change his world in 52 days. May you do the same for us. For some here this morning, we have neglected true discipleship and the weapons of spiritual warfare for the temporal pressures of this world and the flesh. And by doing so, we fail to stand against our culture. And, Lord, we've seen the foundations of the church weakened and in some, God, some, some regards dismantled. Lord, I ask now as we close in song and in worship that you would just convict our hearts and place a burden on each and every one of us for things right where we live, right where we work, right where we, Lord, exist for your purposes. Help us to be passionate. Help us to realize it doesn't matter where we've been before we came in here today, but Lord, you are God of second chances. You're a God that you wants to ignite our passions for your purposes, to make a difference in the world, to make the church what you called it to be. Lord, we just want to be those people. I ask, Lord, to help us live on mission. Help us to look at your truth as, Lord, not just facts about your son Jesus, but, Lord, your story and in doing so, Lord, may it fuel our faith and guide our emotions, Lord, to make a difference for the name of Jesus Christ. Lord, I'd ask that that burden rests on us today, Lord, that we would just, Lord, commit ourselves to acting, to being your people in this place right now. And I just pray this, Lord, as we begin this series, that you would just move us. In your name I pray, Jesus, amen.